Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Good morning, Christ Church. Over the past few months, our world has been gripped by the realities of the global COVID-19 pandemic. Economies have shut down, cities have gone into lockdown, public events like weddings, concerts, theater, and sporting events have been canceled or postponed. And even more basic at the personal level, we've had to adjust to new realities. We've learned about mask wearing, social distancing, foregoing haircuts and doing our own personal grooming, and learning creative ways to wash our hands for 20 seconds. Even this morning, as we worship together, we can plainly see the effects of the pandemic. In multiple levels of technology, I am speaking to you this morning and preaching this morning over a pre-recorded video that is being broadcast over Facebook Live to find you wherever you might be. And we thank God for this technology, but we can at least admit it is weird and strange. Even our vocabulary has been transformed. We've learned to use phrases like community spread, contract tracing, and flattening the curve. We've even had to become become used to corporate cliches like unprecedented times and Miley's favorite, the new normal. I think it's safe to say that our world is dominated by and we are characters in a pandemic narrative. Now, I bring up the realities of this pandemic, not to stoke your anxiety or to bring up any fear or or anger because we all know what's going on, but I think it provides a perfect parallel and introduction to Genesis 3 to 11. You see, Genesis 3 to 11 is itself also a pandemic narrative. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know we've we've begun a two-summer series into the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And a few weeks ago, Scott began uh, with Genesis 1 and the event of creation. And in that text, we see that God creates the world as an ordered and perfect and structured and good universe. And then he places humanity at its peak, gives him and imparts humanity, all both male and female, with the image of of God, and that image of God gives us uh, a calling to be his image bearers and to have dominion and exercise stewardship over creation. We found in Genesis 2 the blessings of human marriage and relationship, and more importantly, we also illustrated the, the relationship between man and God and what community in right relationship looks like. And all of this is good. It's the way that things are supposed to be. It's the way that things that God intended. But when we get to Genesis 3, our narrative takes a dark turn. And as Scott talked about last week, we see the effects of an original but ordinary sin in which our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God attempted to wrestle from him control at defining morality, at defining what is good and what is evil. Because of that action, experienced the curse of sin and exile. 
death. You see, Adam and Eve became patient zero of a new pandemic. And in Genesis 4, the text that we're going to be looking at this morning, we see the first symptoms of that pandemic. We see that it becomes not just a pandemic of sin, but a pandemic of violence. And after our tragedy, if we continue in the story, we see the explosion, the community spread, the infection of humanity, resulting in the near complete destruction of the world that God had created in the event of the flood, a story that we'll be looking at next week uh, with Dr. Walton from Wheaton, a spread that eventually results in the scattering of humanity and the confusion of its languages and the breakdown of human relationship in Genesis 11, a text that I'll be talking about in a few weeks. And the need for God to inaugurate a new plan and a new relationship with humanity in Genesis 12, a text that we'll get to later in the summer. Now, in these narratives and in these chapters of Genesis 3 to 11, we do see some good. We do see the explosion of the blessing of God from Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, if you remember, we learned that as part of being image bearers, as part of being created, God blessed humanity and said, be fruitful and multiply. And then exercise dominion over the world. And we see these two facets of blessing uh, being demonstrated in these chapters. First, we see children being born. Even in our own text at the very beginning, we see the birth of Cain and Abel. An event that Eve herself celebrates by proclaiming, I have now acquired human, a man with the help of God. And even at the end, after the tragic events of Genesis 4, we see new birth, the birth of Seth. And notably, we see the transmission of the image of God in this birth. Things are good. We also see human flourishing as we learn to exercise what it means to be the image bearers and use our creativity to exercise dominion. We see things like farming and shepherding in our passage. And at the end, we see things like city building and music and metallurgy, and animal domestication, all the good things of civilization we see beginning in Genesis 3 to 11. But sadly, these good things are almost entirely eclipsed by the negative and tragic story that begins in Genesis 4. Now, as we dive into this passage this morning, I really have two plans of attack. First, we're going to take a deep dive into the story and look at a couple of interpretive issues that, that come up with this text. And then once that's complete, we'll take a step back. And I want to ask and answer three large questions about this text. I think this text shows us this morning. First, what does this text tell us about God? Uh, second, what does this text tell us about humanity? And third, what is our response as Christians, as people of the new kingdom of God, to this text? But before we get to that, would you pray with me? God, be with us this morning. Uh, open our hearts and our ears to a message from you. God, cleanse my lips and my thoughts. Make my words your words this morning. God, use me as your mouthpiece. God, speak to my heart this morning. Speak to our hearts this morning. And God, use this time 
to teach us what it means to your people in a world that's gripped by violence. What in your name? So we find our story in Genesis chapter 4. Um, I ask that you do, if you have a Bible, to, to grab one. Uh, you're going to need it this morning. Um, while you're looking for that, um, I'm going to take a quick sip of water. Give you a chance to find the book of Genesis. It's at the very beginning of the biblical text, all the way on the left. We find our chapter, and our story rather, uh, in Genesis chapter 4 this morning. All right, we're going to begin in verse 3. So after the introduction about the birth of Cain and Abel and their respective professions, we actually begin in a worship service. The story goes that at the end of days or a, some certain course of time, each brother brings the fruit of their labors to God. Cain brings some of the produce of the ground, crops and grains. And Abel brings one of the firstborn of his flock and the fat that goes with the offering. But as they bring their offerings, we curiously find in verse 4 that God, or I may use Yahweh occasionally here, if your Bible has the all caps Lord, that's the divine name of God, Yahweh, uh, in Hebrew. And Yahweh looks favorably and accepts Abel and his offering. But to Cain and his offering, he doesn't accept. He doesn't look favorably at it. Now, one of the questions that often comes up with this text is what about each sacrifice makes it? worthy of acceptance or worthy of rejection. The text doesn't really tell us. And so we've had scholars throughout history that have tried to fill in the gaps. We do find in Hebrews 11.4, a text that was read this morning, that Abel's able, Abel is able to offer to God a more acceptable sacrifice because of his faith. But again, it doesn't really answer our question. What about the sacrifice is acceptable or unacceptable? And if you look through scholarship, both ancient and modern, you'll see dozens of opinions. Arguments that Cain's offering doesn't represent the first fruits of his crops, that maybe God prefers shepherds to farmers. Maybe it's an internal attitude or motive on the part of Cain. Maybe it's just divine choice that's unexplainable. But I, as we look at these opinions, I submit to this morning that it's not the point of this passage. The reason we don't get an explanation is because it's not important. In fact, this rejection actually sets the scene for the real importance of the narrative that we see as it begins to unfold. The real importance is not the acceptance or rejection, but Cain's reaction to the event. And we find this again in verse 5. So after God rejects Cain and his offering, we see that Cain is very angry. And the text says that his face falls. Now what Cain is experiencing here is the sting and bitter disappointment of rejection. Now, wherever we are, whoever you are, we've all felt this sting of rejection and this disappointment at not being accepted. Maybe it's in the big realities of not getting a promotion we thought we deserved or recognition for our work. Or maybe it's something as simple as giving a gift and getting that dreaded, oh, thanks reaction. That doesn't really express gratitude, but expresses confusion and non-acceptance. 
And this rejection, it stings Cain to the core. As the narrative continues, God notices this reaction and confronts Cain about it. In verse 6, we see that God says to Cain, why are you angry and, and why has your face fallen? And then he continues with a pair of rhetorical questions and a, a verse that is extremely complex. He says, don't you know that if you do well, won't there be acceptance? But if you do not, isn't sin lurking at your door? Now, it being sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God, through these rhetorical questions, this statement offers Cain a warning about the dangers of temptation and sin. Now, so much is going on here. I wish we had time to address all the aspects of his verse, or all the aspects of this verse. We see connections to Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 in language of desire and control or dominion. But what I want to focus on specifically is this picture of sin lurking at the door. See, what this communicates is that it, it personifies sin as a danger that lies in wait to ambush Cain. It hides by the door, and when Cain least expects it, it will attack and consume him. Now, this picture of sin and temptation as a dangerous force that is, that is deserving of its warning and to be avoided is found throughout the biblical text. In the book of Proverbs, we see folly personified as a, a force that wants to seduce and destroy the young man and the audience of Proverbs. In the New Testament, we see this as well. And for instance, in 1 Peter 5, where Peter warns his audience that the devil goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And in this sinister image, Cain is given a dire warning that if he's not careful, this emotion of bitter disappointment and this anger has the potential to take root in his heart and blossom into hatred and violence. As I was reflecting on this warning that God gives Cain, I couldn't help but be reminded of the words of the great Jedi Master Yoda in The Phantom Menace. And in one of the scenes of the movie, uh, the young Anakin Skywalker, um, who's one of the key characters in this movie if you haven't seen it, stands before a council of Jedi Masters. These are masters who can control the Force, and it is part of the whole Star Wars narrative. If you haven't watched it, it's a good story. But as Anakin is being interviewed by these Jedi, they begin to probe into his emotions and ask him what he's feeling. And they notice because they can see right through him by the power of the Force, they notice that he's afraid, and they confront him about it. And young Anakin responds, what does fear have to do with anything? And Yoda, in his great wisdom, responds, everything. And I'll spare you my Yoda impersonation, but he continues and warns Anakin that fear is the path to the dark side of the Force. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. And hate leads to suffering. And at that moment, the music gets tense because everybody who's experienced Star Wars knows what happens. 
and much like the main character of our story, Anakin Skywalker, because of his emotions and his inability to control them, gives in to the power of the dark side and becomes Darth Vader. And we can see a similar warning here. Kane is warned by his emotions. God warns him, if you do not do well, beware because sin is waiting to attack and consume. Now, of course, we know the story. We've heard it this morning. Cain does not heed God's warning. But at the very next verse, he finds his brother, ambushes him, and kills him. But our story doesn't end there. And we get one final scene between God and Cain. Confrontation scene. And this scene parallels exactly what we saw in Genesis 3. Just like in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and God finds them, he asks Cain a pointed question. Where is your brother? And much like his parents, Cain gives a response that tries to evade responsibility. He says, I don't know. And he echoes some of the darkest words in all scripture when he says and challenges God. Am I my brother's keeper? And just like in the garden, God responds heartbreakingly with a curse. And our narrative concludes with Cain being cursed and exiled from the presence of God. He's told that the ground that used to give him food will no longer work for him. And he's condemned to be a wanderer and a vagabond. And just like in Genesis 3, our text ends with the words that Cain moves and dwells east of Eden. And so our story that began in a worship service ends and a tragic murder, an exile of a murderer. So then, that's our story. Now we get to our questions. First, what does this text tell us about God? God is our main character in the Hebrew Bible and in this story, and it's worth noting how this text portrays the character of God. And really, we get a paradox here. We get two sort of contrasting aspects of God's character. First, we see that God is just. He hears the blood of Abel and is grieved by the unjust spilling of innocent blood. We find this at God's response in verse 10. He, God, says... What have you done? This is right after Cain tries to deny knowledge and, and, and responds, Am I my brother's keeper? God responds, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. There's a lot going on in this verse. And, and one of the key things here is the image that we get of blood. Now, in, in Hebrew, the word for blood has really two uh, nuances based on whether it's singular or plural. 
In the singular, it can mean any blood. The blood of a human, the blood of an animal or a sacrifice or an animal that's slaughtered for food. It can even refer to the blood of a grape or an oil, the juice that is used to produce wine or olive oil. But when it's in the plural, blood carries a darker meaning, this word. In most of its occurrences, in every of its occurrences, it talks about innocent blood that is unjustly spilled. It's innocent blood that results from things like murder. And most importantly, innocent blood demands justice. This is something that God takes very seriously. We fast forward a bit in our narrative to Genesis 9. After the event of the flood, we see that, that God, as he's instituting the covenant with Noah, he reminds him and tells him, that, look, any of your descendants do not shed innocent blood. And he warns him and says, for whoever sheds the blood of a human, this is chapter 9, verse 6 of Genesis, by a human, that one's blood will be shed. And note here, importantly, for in the image of God, God made humanity. See here, this image of blood and the shedding of blood and why it's so significant is tied to the very dignity of humanity, that we are created in the image of God. If you continue through the biblical text and get into uh, the laws of the Torah, the books like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we see a constant theme that blood that is spilled unjustly, it pollutes the land. And it has to be addressed either through justice or through some kind of ritual to cleanse the land, cleanse the people. And if they don't, God warns them that the Israelites will be expelled from the land. God takes murder and unjust killing very seriously. He also sees a part, not just the blood, but also in his hearing of the cry of the blood. Another thing we see about the biblical text, this verb for to cry, we see that it is the same verb that is used in the Exodus narrative to talk about the crying out of the people for deliverance from Egypt or the deliverance in the book of Judges from their oppressors of their neighbors. We see in the law and the prophets that is similarly the cry of the oppressed, whether the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, that go up to God, cries that he will listen to and to which he will respond. And this text affirms that God is definitely a God of justice. But it also tells us something interesting about God and his reaction to Cain. It's interesting that if we look at the biblical text, we know that the punishment for murder is death. That justice often demands an eye for an eye, a life for a life, but note God's mercy here. Cain doesn't die immediately. Now, yes, he is given a full front, of, a full force of the punishment of God. He is cursed. He's removed from the ground. He's doomed to be a vagabond and a wanderer in the earth, but he leaves with his life. And more than that, note, as Cain responds, and he says in verse 13, that my sin or punishment is too great to bear, and he, he asks God and says, look, as I become a wanderer at the end of verse 14, whoever finds me will kill me. 
Here the murderer is worried about his own life. And what is God's response in verse 15? No, it will not be so. Whoever kills Cain will be avenged seven times. We find that God sets a mark on Cain to protect him. In God's mercy, he doesn't kill Cain, but rather spares, protects him. We're not told why. Perhaps it is to give Cain a chance to repent, to turn from his sins. But in any case, God responds with mercy to Cain. And so we see this tension between two aspects of God's character. His justice on the one hand, his response to blood that is shed, but also his mercy. And this ties into a theme that we see throughout the biblical text. As we fast forward to the Hebrew Bible, we see the same tension of justice and mercy dominate the relationship between God and Israel, both in Egypt, in the wilderness, and in the land of Israel, that he reminds them that of the need to punish sins, the need for righteousness, but also responds in mercy and patience and love with them. And of course, this tension isn't just in the Hebrew Bible. We also find it in our very gospel. You see, this tension and this paradox of justice and mercy also explains the cross. It explains the sending of God's Son, Jesus, into humanity to die and to bear the full punishment for human sin. That's the justice of God, but also emphasizes the mercy and grace of God that through his blood and his death and resurrection, we as sinful people experience salvation in relationship, right relationship with God. Praise God for his justice. In addition to the picture of God, we also see a picture of humanity here. And it is not a flattering picture. We see that that humanity is violent. We are a people of violence. We are a culture of violence. As we fast forward through the text, as I mentioned the pandemic earlier, we see after Cain's event an explosion of human violence. If you fast forward to the end of the chapter, uh, in chapter 4, we see uh, the genealogy of Cain. And as the narrator or author is reciting the generations of Cain, we see a particular speech given by one of his descendants, a man named Lamech. And Lamech, in a boastful poem to his wife, proclaims, and this is in verse 4, 23 and 24, he boasts that I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech will be avenged 77 times. See, here we see that violence isn't just a thing to be avoided. It's something that is celebrated by the descendants of Cain. Not just boasted about, but it's also escalated. No, it's not just seven times, but 77 times. And if we continue on, we see a world that becomes consumed by violence and hatred. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, in the events leading up to the flood, we read that the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. And it was filled with violence. Now, we know all full well this is not 
an ancient problem. This is not just a problem for the world of Genesis. We know that our world, even today, is consumed by violence and hatred and death. We've seen this very clearly in the events of the past few months in our news, in our world. We are a world that is dominated by violence. In one of my favorite depictions, I think one of the most poignant depictions of the event of Cain and Abel, um, comes from uh, the 2014 Darren Aronofsky film, Noah. And in this movie, as Noah is on the ark, the character of Noah, played by Russell Crowe, narrates the history of creation to his descendants. And as he begins and talks about creation and the beauty and the goodness of it, he also relates to them the realities of human sin. He talks about the sin of Adam and Eve, and then says that over the generations since their first parents, the world has been consumed by violence. As he's talking about the anger and the hatred and the murder that exists in his world, we see a depiction in silhouette form of Cain killing Abel. He has a rock in his hand and he comes down the initial blow. And as Cain kneels and goes for the final blow, the silhouette changes repeatedly into different silhouettes of humans throughout history wearing different costumes and in armor, different weapons like Rocks and swords and spears and axes and guns and bayonets going for the killing blow of Abel. Now, if you were with us during our Easter vigil uh, with our diocese, you saw the church that did the story of sin. They used that powerful image, and the meaning is clear. That what began in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 extends to us today. Now, you may be thinking this morning, well, I, I haven't killed anyone. Um, I'm not a particularly physical, violent person. But if we're honest with ourselves, violence and hatred goes far deeper into our hearts than murder and physical attack. We see it, for instance, in verbal violence, in the way that we use words to tear down one another. Maybe in person, directly face-to-face, or maybe in the form of gossip or the anonymity of social media. We see it in the way that we respond to conflict among one another. We seek to, to dominate rather than to restore relationships. Even in the way that we think about other people, we often find hatred and anger. One author put it this way when talking about the the nature of humanity. He goes, incontestably, alas, most people are not in action worth very much. And yet every human being is an unprecedented miracle. One tries to treat them as the miracles they are while trying to protest oneself against the disasters that they've become. I think this quote illustrates perfectly the nature of, of the corruption of the image of God, the miracle of humanity disastrously being consumed by violence. So we see that, that God in this chapter is just and merciful, and we see that humanity is violent. So we come to our third question. What is our response as the people of God? 
what is our response as Christians to this pandemic of violence? And if I may hear, I, I kind of want to go back to the sermon that Scott preached about a month ago. Our response first is to look to the blood of Abel. We lament the violence. We recognize it. We, we lament it and mourn it in our world. And we confess our own participation in it. We confess the ways that, that, that violence and hatred have infected us as part of the human race. We mourn it. We proclaim with all the mourners and lamenters throughout Scripture, Lord, how long? But our response doesn't just end there. As Scott said, we look to the blood of Abel, but we also look to the blood of Jesus. And as Scott preached on Hebrews 12 a few weeks ago, we find that the blood of Jesus, it speaks a louder and better and greater word than the blood of Abel. You see, Christ himself, for our sake, suffered an unjust death. His blood was spilled unjustly on our behalf. And his blood doesn't just cry out for justice or vengeance, it cries out to the transformation of our lives and the inauguration of a new kingdom way. And we find this new kingdom way scattered and mentioned throughout the Gospels. We find that as part of this new kingdom way, Christ warns his followers that it's not just murder that's important, but also anger and hatred, they're akin to murder. As part of this new kingdom way, Christ extols us to the disciplines of loving our enemies, of praying for our persecutors, and turning the other cheek. And in the beautiful passage we read this morning, one of the most beautiful and poignant passages in all of Scripture, we read in Matthew 5 that God calls us to be peacemakers. Note in Matthew 5, 9, the passage this morning, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And so in our world of violence, we're called peacemakers. Now this status, we, we do have to spend a few moments on it. We know that it's not a passive peace. We're not called to retreat to the comfort of, of, of a monastery or to remove ourselves from the world and let the world be the world, but we're told and called to an active engagement in the dirt, the grime, and the blood of our violent world. And we're called into this world to make peace. Now, I do have to address a little bit of what peace means here. In English, we talk about peace as just the absence of violence, but in the worldview of the biblical text, it goes much deeper than that. Uh, in Hebrew, the, ver the word for peace is the, the, the noun shalom. And though we often translate it as peace, it means much more than that. It means well-being. It means goodness and, and order in the absence of chaos. And as one 
Christian philosopher writes, it's the way that God intended it to be. It's the way of Eden. It's the status of the garden. And more importantly, it's what we as the image bearers of God in Genesis 1 are called to do and created to live. We're called to be peacemakers, to be shalom restorers to a broken world. Now, if you look through Christian history, this concept of being a peacemaker has sparked countless debates. Numerous words have been written, speeches have been given, and sermons have been given to try to understand the, the nuances of this call because we find it so countercultural to the way that our rest of our world lives, the way that we want to live in our world of violence. Now, I don't have it all figured out because it does violate the new normal of our pandemic of violence existence. But if I can recommend one book that has really been foundational for me on this, it's a book called Fight. Uh, it's by a New Testament scholar named Preston Sprinkle, uh, who's a fantastic scholar of the New Testament and a fantastic man of God. And I think he gives some helpful implications for what this means to be people of peace. And as I've been reflecting on his work and my own study of scripture, I think we can talk about a few ideas of what peacemaking means in our own lives. See, peacemaking forces us to examine the way that we interact with one another, especially in a divided world in a divided country like our own? Do we enter that world and interact with one another in love and peace or in anger and hatred? It forces us to examine how we use our words. Do we build one another up and encourage each other with our words or do we use them to tear one another down? Whether it's face to face in gossip or to other people on social media, how do we use our words? Are we using them to build one another up? It also forces us to examine how we use our resources. Do we use them for our own selfish gain at the exploitation of others, or do we use them instead to help restore our communities? To respond to injustice in our world, to bring shalom into our communities and our world. It also forces us to look at how we do conflict. Do we seek to win and dominate conflict? Or do we use it to restore and preserve relationships? And these are just a few of the many implications of what it means to people of peace. My prayer for us as Christ Church, and wherever you may be, if you're a part of our community or not, my prayer for us as a people of God, give ourselves fully to the way of peace, to the new kingdom way that rejects the pandemic of violence and seeks the cure of peacemaking. May we, by the power of God in the grace of of Jesus Christ, and the working of the Holy Spirit. May we learn to truly embody 
and pray the words that our Savior taught us to pray. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.